When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hi, this is Jen Rubin. Welcome to Jen Rubin's Green Room. This week, we have an extraordinary guest, someone I've gotten to know over the years in her many roles as MSNBC guest, as a law professor, as a former counselor to the mayor of New York City, as uh, now the head of one of the premier organizations for civil and human rights in the United States, the Leadership Conference, and really as a voice of clarity and historical perspective We have today Maya Wiley, and I think we are at a very confusing time. On one hand, we have President Biden signing an initiative to create a memorial for Emmett Till. On the other hand, we have these state-led efforts in Florida, frankly, but elsewhere, to eviscerate African-American history. So without further ado, Maya, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be with you, Jen. We, uh, as I was telling my audience, we go back a few years and you've had uh, many roles, many hats. Uh, Now you're a CEO of arguably the premier civil rights organization in the United States. And because of that role, you get to do very cool things. Um, And as we are taping this, you come directly from, uh, I believe, a ceremony involving Emmett Till. Tell, Tell us about that. Yeah, the White House today, the vice president and president, um, they had already announced that there would be a monument erected uh, both in Mississippi and in Illinois to remember both Emmett Till, a 14-year-old who was brutally lived, lived in Chicago but traveled to Mississippi to visit relatives and was brutally murdered at the age of 14, uh, badly maimed, thrown in a river. Uh, and his mother's spent a lifetime both trying to get him justice, but but also his in a very, very uh, brave, courageous, devastating, traumatic and important moment, made a decision to keep his coffin open at his funeral because he said the, they need to see what they did to my baby. Everybody should see what they did to my baby. And remember his transgression was uh, that he flirted with a white woman. This is why he was murdered. And um, so this was really an erection of this monument, you know, proclamation to the fact that this monument was going to be built. Uh, But it was also, you know, an incredibly important moment for both the vice president and the president of the United States to stand up and say, you know, we can't be afraid of our history. And we actually have to be willing to learn all the good along with all the bad, and that that's what makes us a great country, and that this isn't just a monument to this bravery and courage uh, and to this history. It's a reminder that we cannot and should not avoid it, and that we're better than this. And it was extremely moving. I mean, the president at one point 
um, not only teared up, but you know, I you could see the tears rolling as he was not only remembering this event, but looking upon the family, looking upon members of Congress who are black, uh, who are Asian, <laughs> who are you know were there, who had long fought for this recognition, and it was really, I think, an important moment given where we are in our country today. It is extraordinary. I never thought that President Biden would be such a public educator when it came to race. Um, I felt similarly when he went to Tulsa to um, really uh, commemorate the horrible massacre of blacks and the destruction of what was informally called uh, Black Wall Street then. Uh, it feels like he's filling a void or at least trying to counteract this movement that really is seeking to excise, destroy African-American history, which is American history. How did we get to this point where we have this virulent movement that really is trying to write out of history Americans, a whole group of Americans who are vital to our national story? How did we get here? You know, there's so many different answers to that question, Jen. Um, but I'll focus on two things. One, there were there was never a time in our history where there weren't some people, some small minority of people, actively fighting against the progress we were making as a nation on racial equity, on religious freedom. <laughs> Uh, on uh, being a country of immigrants, on folks' ability to be who they are, including in terms of sexual orientation, in terms of women's rights, and that often these things were always very connected. Uh, but that element has always been with us, and it never went away. But I think what we saw in 2016 and 2015 in that presidential election cycle, uh, we, we saw something I certainly had not seen before in my lifetime, which is a candidate running for office from a major political party that had made a decision to outwardly, outwardly run on misogyny, run on racial stereotypes, say the things out loud <laughs> that most politicians thought you should not say, and that candidate was candidate Donald Trump. Uh, we saw incitement to violence at some of his rallies. We just saw things that, you know, were simply not considered acceptable in mainstream politics until that presidential election. And we know that that empowered and emboldened white supremacists. It empowered and emboldened neo-Nazis. It empowered and emboldened you know, groups like the Proud Boys actually organized around it as what they call, you know, Western chauvinists, um, what the uh, Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center, a member organization of ours, would call, you know, the gateway organization to white supremacy, uh, became the foot soldiers of, of Trumpism. And there was a lot of active activity, including, including by Breitbart News under Steve Bannon, to kind of brand some of these extremists as alt-right, which is simply a way of whitewashing out hate uh, and extremism. And even as we saw in the Unite the Right rally, that anti-Semitic rally, awful offensive that resulted in the murder of Heather Heyer, um, that, that Unite the Right rally, remember that 
those hate groups, those members of hate groups, wore polo shirts and chinos, <laughs> you know, khaki pants, you know, to look kind of preppy and college and to put a different face on hate. And it, it, I, I think it's impossible to look at the st statistics and the rise in hate crimes. We've had an 80% increase in the rise in hate crimes since 2015. Uh, and we've seen this kind of mainstreaming of book banning, mainstreaming of attacks on uh, learning history, mainstreaming of attacks on being tolerant and allowing folks to be who they are in terms of their sexual orientation, all of which is intertwined, all of which, all of which has been given this very strange permission that while it's not a majority of the country, it's far too large a number. And that is really what has shocked me more than a demagogue coming along, because we've had demagogues in the past. We're really talking about tens of millions of people. And it is hard for me to accept that either these people still don't care or they actively support this. And I think one of the things that was brought home on January 6th is how central hate and anti-Semitism, racism is to the Trump movement. They weren't carrying um, a uh, tributes to, I don't know, um, great generals of the uh, Union Army. They were carrying Confederate flags through the Capitol that didn't happen in the Civil War. The guys were wearing, you know, Camp Auschwitz t-shirts. So I think the effort to whitewash Trump and whitewash the movement is very misguided because at bottom, it is about race. It is about the reaffirmation of white supremacy. Are you as surprised as I am that tens of millions of people seem to have signed up for this or at least tolerate this? You know, I, I, I mean, I'll say yes and no. No, <laughs> I mean, because I think, it, I think it depends on how we look at it. We have known... I think, and, you know, Jen, I'm going to assume you've known it too. We've always known hate has been with us in this country. It has never gone away. Um, but there's also a group of people, and I, and I think this is part of the complexity of this kind of conversation. They're the folks who are racist, anti-Semitic, know it, embrace it, uh, proclaim it, and are proud of it. And then there are those who would say that they do not embrace hate, that they would say that they're not being racist, they're not being anti-Semitic. They're just stating facts and science. I mean, I just testified before the House Select Committee on the Weaponization of Government, which Jim oh, Jordan chairs, and um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, as well as a journalist, uh, reporter is probably a better word at that, from Breitbart News about the censorship, and I am using air quotes for your audience, the censorship of conservatives on social media platforms, the notion that First Amendment rights are being taken away, and the statements after making, I mean, uh, Robert F. Kennedy that makes the statements that we have heard him make um, that certainly, certainly would drive stereotypes about black people, would drive stereotypes about people who are Jewish, about people who are Japanese, um, that would drive those stereotypes and yet say, but 
and he will say, and I would, I would argue, I'm sure he believes, I personally am not racist. Uh, I'm going to contribute to a way of thinking that says black people are like uh, hyper strong genes that enable them, you know, to be whatever that stereotype is. I don't even want to repeat it because it's just disinformation uh, that, you know, somehow COVID-19 was weaponized, uh, but it protects and doesn't harm Ashkenazic Jews and people who are Chinese. We all know what happened during COVID in terms of Asian Americans being targeted by hate, being attacked, you know, the incredible rise in that and the rise in anti-Semitism. But all of these have roots in these tropes that anti-Semitic and racist groups use. So I think there are people out here who don't understand and make the connection and feel that this is their free speech rights. I mean, we're, we're really seeing a weaponization of the First Amendment that sort of says we can use this as an organizing tool that has driven actual acts of hate and violence. We saw it in January 6th, but kind of suggest that it's just neutral, that it's just fact statements, when in some instances they're just, they're just outright racist. And of course, we know, because we can look at statistics, that in fact, it's people like Breitbart that dominate on outlets like Twitter. This is the irony, the victimization that they create so that they, uh, one of the telltale signs of Trump supporters is that they believe whites are more discriminated against than you can fill in the blank, any group. It's statistically, historically, sociologically, economically nonsense. And yet they use it in therefore justifying whatever actions they're going to take and thereby trying to undo whatever small steps are made to um, move towards a more perfect union. Um, And it's this victimization. I have to say, as a former Republican, it's appalling because this is the party that used to say there's no excuses for anything. It's all personal responsibility. You can't blame, you know, society for your woes. But this kind of white victimization is really rather stunning. Um, When you talk to people around the country, is this something that is actually permeating? Are people kind of soaking this up so that they feel that it's white Christian nationalists who are the victims and not the perpetrators? You know, it's interesting, and, and I've, I've heard a range of things, right? So I certainly want to say that, you know, there's so many people in this country of all races, of all classes, who are appalled who understand that this is very dangerous for the country, very dangerous for democracy. They cross political boundaries. There's not, you know, I just want to say that because it's not really a partisan conversation when there really are a lot of people who also are in the Republican Party who are repulsed. Uh, Now, they're also silenced (laughs) by their own party. Um, That's a different problem, but, but they feel that. And I think to your point, some of them have left the party for that reason, uh, but not because they wanted to leave some of the tenants that had brought them to the party in the the first place, but these were not those tenants for them. Uh, One of the things that I was shocked to hear recently uh, was, so they're the group of people who know they're hate groups (laughs) and in hate groups and that they're trying to drive and organize hate. Uh, Then they're the people who 
uh, are very, very readily able to embrace it, although are in a kind of a denial about it. Uh, and then there are the folks who actually would say, no, 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 I completely abhor you know, Trumpism and people who kind of adhere to this kind of hate and division that we're driving this country in this kind of uh, white victimhood. And then they'll say in a statement, and I'm he hearing more and more anecdotes like this, I really, and kind of in a whisper, I really do feel sorry for white men right now. Right. Um, and that means that there is, on, on in terms of some of these messaging like affirmative action is like somehow harmful and unfair to students who are white who are applying to elite colleges, uh, ignoring the fact that, say, at Harvard, 48% of white students who were admitted between 2009 and 2014 got in on some form of preference known as legacy because your parents went or because you row on the crew team or play, you know, a sport that many public schools in cities with kids of color don't even have, fencing, or your parent is a big donor to Harvard. Like, these are all things that have been preferences for kids who are more likely than not to be white, and yet anything else is somehow burdening and unfair. But there is a way that that has started to permeate because there is such a megaphone uh, for this and there are so many people who are able to use that megaphone. And you know, the one thing we didn't talk about, Jen, is the amount of private dollars flowing in to drive this and to ensure that the audience for these kinds of messages grow. And they're quite conservative. Um, you know, in the case of Ed Bloom, who was behind the lawsuits against affirmative action, but who himself was uh, ran for office as a conservative in Texas, lost and tried to attack voting rights uh, because of his loss to, in a congressional race. And it's not just that, it's the stacking of the courts, the Supreme Court with justices that would not adhere to both either our principles, in my view, or our our, our history of constitutional decision-making by the Supreme Court, our precedent. So there is a lot of big, dark money behind a lot of what we're seeing and hearing, and it's one of the reasons. I mean, uh, Leonard Leo, who's been behind a lot of the attacks on abortion rights, uh, a lot of the attack on voting rights, you know, kinds of the, the attacks that we're seeing, has $1.6 billion because he got handed a company to bankroll this. So the dollars outnumber the number of us who actually believe in the American ideals and want a country that lives up to them. That, I think, is such an important point because you're right, they are so loud. And if you, as I do, have to be on social media because that's part of my job, it seems like they are much larger than they are. It's sort of like a army that goes into battle screaming at the top of their lungs. You think there are many more of them. They seem more intimidating than they would really be.
it's interesting that we raise the issue of the litigation against affirmative action. As we speak today, the just uh, the excuse me, the education department has filed a complaint against Harvard going after the legacy admissions, going after these donor admissions. Why doesn't Harvard, which says they're terribly committed to affirmative action, voluntarily give these up? Why do they hang on to these? Is this dollars? Is this where they're in $2 billion or whatever it is now endowment comes from? They could, of course, be leaders here and say, okay, fine, we can do without this. And yet they don't. Well, we'll see what they do in light of this litigation and, and in light of the, the decisions that got handed down by the Supreme Court. I mean, one will hope that every college and university is going to look at their admissions practices and figure out, because there are mechanisms and ways to continue both to let students express them their full selves and be their full selves and how they show up in the admissions process, including saying what their racial background is, saying you know, what their experiences have been, including whether they've been difficult because of racism in America, like that nothing in these Supreme Court opinions prohibit colleges and universities for looking at what is your background and taking that into account. And what are your experiences that help us understand what you went through to get to this point in your life where you're applying to us and what you will bring to the to the college and the university. I mean, you know, the truth is, I, I, I cannot speak for Harvard, obviously. Um, it's certainly- You're a vassal girl, I know. <laughs> and not. Uh, and a Columbia. Um, but look, we, yeah, but we, and I went to Columbia Law School, went to Dartmouth, they all are schools that fall into these categories, right, yeah. of having legacy. I was not a legacy. I did not play one of these sports. I couldn't play the violin either, by the way. <laughs> Uh, I, I was, you know, fortunate enough to get the opportunity to, to go, got an excellent education, was not a sufficiently diverse experience. Um, but I will say this, uh, of course there are a lot of dollars that flow because you can get people who come in who will bring money and bring gifts. And we know, you know, the tuition dollar in much of higher education, uh, and yeah, frankly, even in private schools that aren't higher ed., don't actually pay for the education. Um, that's the other dirty little secret about the United States is we really don't have a system of education that is really set up to ensure that every one of our kids can get a high quality education. And it's a dirty, it's a, it's a not so public, private uh, uh, secret. Um, but at any rate, I'm not suggesting that Harvard or Princeton or any of the top universities, including the ones I got go-to should get public dollars. But what I am saying is that this, the way we have set up higher education does not really create a fair opportunity for all our kids to get, get a great education, and we got to fix that. By the way, Harvard, with their endowment, could make it free, actually. They could very steeply cut those um, ridiculous tuitions, which themselves are a deterrent to a diverse population. We've now seen these statistics that on economic, socioeconomic grounds, what we're doing is perpetuating a certain class of people as opposed to broadening and making available to people, regardless of race, regardless of economic uh, situation, giving them access to that education. And you know, I think something that's not expressed enough is that 
this hurts all of us. When we don't give people the opportunity to flourish, all of us are denied that. You think of the scientists who didn't get their PhDs. You think of the doctors who would have invented other things. You think of um, you know, scientists. You think of all sorts of people. We're deprived of that. So this notion that it only works one way, that we somehow lose something if uh, some of these uh, schools start admitting uh, people who aren't rich white men, um, never gets contrasted with the gains we have as a society. And in fact, the Supreme Court rejected the notion that diversity is a good thing. That was mind-blowing to me. What if your entire university is based on the premise that we want to prepare people for a diverse, pluralistic America? They're not allowed to have such a school? It's it's also mind-blowing because it ignored the University of Michigan cases where, you know, and to your point, Jen, I think dead on, you're absolutely right. And by the way, it's been true of everything we've ever done in this country to create more fairness for people who have not been treated fairly. Every single time we do that, we benefit other people. And my one of my favorite examples of this is the New York City Police Department, right? There, you know, there was a time, this is on gender, we could, we could use examples on race too, but you know, there was a time when you had to be a certain height to qualify to apply for a job as a police officer at the New York City Police Department. And, you know, the lawsuits that challenged gender discrimination, for example, in that suit, this was a, this was a, this was a suit that got won. They said there's no job-related reason to have this height requirement. So when they got rid of the height requirement, which was, of course, meant more women because women were typically shorter, had more opportunity to apply, it meant all these white men who could not apply to the police department because they were too short could now apply to the police department. I mean, every time we open up opportunities, they don't just go to benefit one group. In the context of affirmative action and the University of Michigan cases, you know, where Sandra Day O'Connor, a Republican, appointed by Ronald Reagan, first woman on the bench, literally said, look, all I've got, I mean, I'm par- I'm not, I'm, this is not literally what she wrote, but got reams of briefs from psychologists from educators, from the U.S. military, from businesses saying, look, we're strong, we can, military saying, we cannot strengthen the national security if you're not doing diversity. We rely on it. I'm going to go tomorrow to Howard University to an event that's going to commemorate the integration of the U.S armed forces, which made them stronger. Uh, You know, we forget that benefits the U.S., but also critical thinking skills. You know, we challenge each other. We have different experiences. When When we learn together and challenge one another in those ways, that actually is where a lot of our of our growth comes from, including, to your point, our ability to be a pluralist society, our ability to be a society where we do know how to work together because we're different. We do know how to figure out what our shared problems are, what our different problems are, and how we should work together on them. That helps everybody. So I I, I think it was, you're, you're so right. I'm so glad you said it. And it's one of the reasons why, frankly, 
we all have to be very disturbed. Even if you're a white man, you are not going to be better off because women can get abortions. You are not going to be better off because black people can be prevented from um, from having an equal opportunity to go to, co to an elite college. You're not going to be better off because we ban books that, frankly, you might enjoy reading and learning about in school might have been your only opportunity to get exposed to them. Or maybe you have a child who turns out to be gay. And the opportunity to have read and learned something about that might have made you a better parent. And I just think this is what we have to remember as a country. This is why it was so moving today when the president said, you know, we, silence is complicity, but it's also, you know, the way we're going to be a more perfect union. He absolutely quoted that as you did, Jen, and it was powerful. I bet, I bet. And when we do these things, we come out in such a better place. We had the base changing commission. This was the commission that was going to go and look at military bases that had been named for traitors, the Confederates who took up arms against the United States. And of course, right-wing Republicans were all opposed to this. Why we should honor traitors is beyond me, other than the fact that this is the lost cause and that whole mindset. And they didn't just choose names randomly to replace them. They chose a diversity of people who at least I had never heard of in certain contexts because these people were African-Americans. These people were Native Americans. These people came from all walks of life. And when the community heard who these people were, there was great pride in elevating these people. So on one hand, you have white male traitors, and on the other hand, you have diverse heroes. I mean, this should be a no-brainer. Um, and I would like to think there's more discussion of this and there's more uplift of this. I know my listeners and readers um, get very depressed at times because it seems like there is no end to it. And I tried to tell them, that's right, it's a never-ending battle. But what are some ways in which ordinary Americans are and can make a difference in making sure we have a pluralistic society and fighting back against intolerance? Give some of our listeners something to hang on to or, or a to-do list. What can they do? Oh, you know, it's, it's such a good question. And there's so many things. So first of all, I think every, every, almost every state, doesn't matter which state you live in, maybe not your neighborhood, maybe not your immediate community, but almost every state has some group that enables you to get engaged in doing voter education work, that enables you to get engaged in ways in which you can push uh, your state legislators or your city council for the kind of education curriculum or the kinds of opportunities that make for a more fair and just society. Every single one. Uh, if you need to find resources for them, you can come and sign up at our website at the, for the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Our website is civilrights.org www.civilrights.org. But, you know, even acts of civic engagement, like registering and signing up to become a poll worker, is now an act, a pro-democracy act, because it's under attack. Running for school board. I had a friend whose brother, New Yorker, 
his brother was uh, uh, running for school board because in a conservative place in Tennessee, because uh, in North Carolina, sorry, because he was seeing uh, the fights that were happening over the schools. He didn't have kids in the system. He just wanted to be able to represent the community uh, and the point of view that says we all care about our kids. We all want to make sure they get a great education. And that means they have to be able to learn history. Um, so he ran for the school board. He didn't win. He might win next time. It actually matters a lot. It's one of the things that the forces against democracy started doing was contesting in school boards. Uh, it's also an act of resistance when people threaten because of it. But I, but I acknowledge that some folks, some places, it may feel scary to do that. Um, one of the things that uh, I think is it sounds small, but it's not, and anyone can do it is we all have those moments where someone says something that may be that may be racist or sexist or homophobic or anti-Semitic or Islamophobic or whatever the category and may say it and be naive about it or may say it and not be naive about it. But standing up and saying, that's wrong, we don't do that, here's why is critically important because what we have done in this country, and it is true, silence is complicity. Don't be silent. Be polite. You don't have to else you don't also don't have to attack folks. But we know whether we're studying Nazi Germany or any other place, it is it is or if we're studying what if what if white abolitionists had kept their mouths shut? Right? I mean, think about that. There are so many points in our history where we have demonstrated that the consequences of staying silent, but what happens when we don't. And that kind, even that act, it may feel small. It is not. Knock on your neighbor's door, start conversations, be willing to have people in, to have neighborhood conversations, neighbor conversations about do we care about education? Do we care about learning about people who are different from us? How do we make sure we're a community that does not fall into the hands of ignorance or hate? All those things matter. They really, really do. And there's no act that is too small. And I, that's the most important thing I want people to know. There is no act that is too small. Every single one counts. I think that is so true. And I think people will be pleasantly surprised when they do engage um, with people in their community. Great things happen. You look at what happens uh, when community policing um, takes hold, when all of the stakeholders have a say in Everyone wants a safe community. Everyone wants a community in which people are treated with respect and decency. So I think when we get out of sometimes the national dialogue, the national shouting contest, and get into the weeds of um, life in America, I think sometimes we do better and we certainly are less depressed about where we are headed. a little bit about your organization and the sorts of things you do. What is life in the day of Maya Wiley's <laughs> look like? Ooh, it can vary. I bet, uh, I bet. Well, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights is both the nation's oldest and the nation's largest civil rights coalition. We 
uh, were founded in 1950 by the NAACP, uh, by uh, actually very powerful, it's, it's, it's it, Arnie Aronson and um, one of the largest Jewish organizations in the country was a co-founder, uh, as well as um, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which was the black trade union. Um, and those three organizations were the founders, but we have always been, although rooted in the black civil rights movement and tradition for sure, always multiracial, always multi-sectoral, uh, because we've always had unions, we've always had litigating organizations, we've always had service providing groups. But now we have over 240 national organizations. Frankly, we look like the country of all the women's rights groups. We have uh, gun reform policy groups. We have most of the major trade unions. We've got all the civil rights groups that are traditional and new. Black Voters Matter is a new member organization, for example. Um, So we do it all. (laughs) Uh, Anything from voting rights to education to um, obviously women's rights, to fighting anti-Semitism, to you name it, if, if, uh, working to uh, work on mis- and disinformation and its impact on our democracy. And so A Day in the Life is really um, all of that work, which to me really is about saving democracy and strengthening it for all of us. Uh, and that includes both frankly, showing up where we have to. I mean, sometimes a day in the life is when I flew to Florida to be with the kids of New College of Florida because the governor and the state house were telling, were fired their president, were telling them what they couldn't, couldn't, couldn't learn, um, were denigrating them as students, and they organized an alternative, you know, they had an alternative commencement because they had Donald Trump's uh, COVID vax deniers are uh, oh that the trustees invited to come do their commencement and they refused. It was an incredibly important time to show up with students uh, and alums who were organizing for academic freedom and for all the things we fight for. But we also work to support voter education, uh, voter registration, and ensure that there's support for particularly in Uh, low-income communities, communities of color, for folks to get the support to get to the polls. Um, We don't do that directly. We work with and train and support local organizations through our membership. But we also make sure we're doing, you know, election integrity. Uh, We lobby Congress. We do. Um, We are working very hard on reintroducing voting rights. You know, we're working on uh, transparency and accountability in policing because, and we believe that real public safety means prevention dollars, so that we spend a dollar on preventing a crime, making sure people have opportunities rather than $5 in a police department, because that's just good policy. Um, so we do, we do any number of things, and for me, one of the joys is that all of it is in partnership and in coalition. All of it is with a group of committed people who look like this country, and all of it, All of it is about all of us, every one of us, and is about an America that lives up to its ideals, which is something that I know the vast majority of people in this country want, so we're working to empower it. And I think that is so critical. When forces of hate, forces that are opposed to democracy, want to stymie dissent, they create dissension among the opposition. 
And the response to this is to link arms. Your favorite issue may not be abortion or my favorite issue may not be the climate or you can go on and on. But understanding that there is a common solidarity in the improvement and the advancement of democracy is really the secret sauce because when we are really united, that's when things occur. And a perfect example which I was writing about today is issue one in Ohio. Issue one is a measure that would make it harder to qualify measures for the ballot. Guess what just qualified? Well, it happens to be a measure that is overwhelmingly popular for abortion rights. But think of all the other groups that are benefited when you can get a measure. And what are they so afraid of? They're afraid of democracy. They're afraid of everyone getting out to vote. So I say I am somewhat nervous in the short term, apprehensive in the midterm, but very optimistic in the long term, because I really do think this country, you know, has shown its its way. Um, thank you, Maya, for being with us. It was such a pleasure, and I, we hope you'll come back. Um, good luck with all you do, and we will put in our chat today the link for your organization and your bio so people know exactly who you are and what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you for being here, and thank you for all you do. Oh, thank you, Jen. Thank you for your voice. Thank you for your platform and for sharing it and for all that you do. It was a pleasure to be with you, and I will be back. And that was Maya Wiley. Wow. What an impressive woman and what important work she is doing. And I do think the message of her organization and the successes that they have had is that we need an alliance of the decent. We need an alliance of the small D Democrats. We need an alliance of a more perfect union supporters. Because when your issue or my issue is supported by a broad spectrum of people, that's how you prevail. That's how you change. That's how you get gun safety. That's how you get climate improvement. That's how you protect reproductive freedom. So important words from Maya Wiley, and we hope you take up her suggestion and begin to do those little things that really do make a difference. So we'll see you next time. Thanks for being with us. Bye-bye.